Welcome to the Secular Dharma Foundation podcast. These episodes are available at no cost on multiple streaming services. The podcast is intended to provide an open dialogue inviting a wide range of perspectives to subjects related to secular issues that align with our mission. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. All right, Dave Smith here with John Peacock. Hey, John, good to see you again, as always. Hi, Dave. Good to see you. And so I just wanted to begin a little bit by um, going through your background a little bit, because it's quite long and extensive. You just get a people where you came from. Um, now, you grew up in England, UK, I suspect. I did, indeed, yeah, I did. And when did you first become interested in Buddhism and first become interested in in all of this stuff that you do now? <laughs> I was rather a sort of precocious child. Um, I started becoming interested in philosophy and religion at the age of 11. Wow. <laughs> um, so I started reading philosophy when I was about 11. Um, and so, I mean, to cut a long story short, I, I just kind of pursued that and it took me into an interest into Asian thought and religions. And by the age of 17, um, I decided that the best way of you know, furthering this interest was to take myself to Asia. And that's yeah, and, what I did. And you started out, so where'd you go to first? Did you end up in, a, in, in the Tibetan school in South India first? Where, where, where did your Asian travels take you? Where, did you? where did you arrive first? And did you think that through or did you just sort of get on a plane and wing it? <laughs> I'm sure you didn't have Google I didn't back even then. Get on a, I didn't even get on a plane in those <laughs> days. I traveled over land. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I took buses and trains all the way to India through Afghanistan and northern wow. Pakistan and everything. Um, and I did that a couple of times uh, over the years um, to get to India. So it wasn't even as simple as jumping on a plane. I mean, wow. it was real acclimatization going through Asia, uh, you know, um, through Europe and then Asia and then uh, arriving in India. I didn't really know what I was looking for when I arrived in India. I knew I wanted to be there and I wanted to discover something about the yogic tradition, something about Hinduism. Buddhism was there, but it wasn't high on my agenda at that stage, I must mm. admit, until I was in Delhi. And this is this is the fortuitousness of the whole thing. I was in Delhi and I was quite ill. I hadn't got a clue. I was the age 17. I hadn't got a clue what the climate and diet of india and things like that was and so i was pretty ill because the temperature you know in fahrenheit was about 110 wow i arrived at the hottest time of the year in delhi and so i was i was feeling very sorry for myself and uh, i was in a cafe and at that time you know this was 1970 so there was a lot of travelers um and travelers used to get together and used to meet up in you know coffee shops and things like that and one of them said to me why don't you go up to the mountains there's a whole lump of very cool characters called tibetans who live up there and so i took the advice because it was cooler you know i just you know thought cool i've got to go yeah, and get right. to the <laughs> tasting the pleasantness right exactly and so i got on the train and then got a bus up into dharmasala Oh, okay. And that was my first encounter with what I call living Buddhism. Right. And, um, you know, I started to study there. You know, I took one of the courses at what was then not quite the Tibetan Library, uh, which it became later. But now, you we, didn't run into Stephen back then, because he must have been up around those parts around that same time. He was a little, Stephen was a little later. Christina Feldman was there at the time. Oh, so you met her way back when? 
Uh, we think we probably bumped into. Yeah, okay, okay. We, sure. we, we look so different now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of people who were basically hanging around with either Geshe Rabta or, in my case, somebody called Geshe Ngawandage. Mm-hmm. And, and it was either kind of up the hill or down the hill. And I was down the hill and the rest were up the hill um, with Geshe, uh, with Geshe Rabtan. And um, that's where it really all started. Yeah. yeah. And on subsequent you know, times when I went back to India, then I established myself down in the monasteries in the south of India, um, because that's where the majority of Tibetan refugees are. Okay. Yeah, so you ended up, you ended up, and how long now did you end up, you ended up ordaining, taking robes in, in the monastery yeah. in southern India? How long were you there for? I was there, let's have a think, on and off, probably nearly seven years. Seven years. Yeah. So you must have learned the Tibetan language and were, were you translating texts and stuff like that too? I was reading Tibetan texts. I taught myself, strangely enough, I taught myself to read Tibetan while I was there. Um, and of course, I was in the situation that, you know, it was a kind of sink or swim situation because in, in the Tibetan parts in the south, unlike Dharamsala, very, very, well, hardly anybody spoke English okay. at all. Um, so I spent time down in the south furthering my study you know, mm-hmm. within a Galupka monastery, situ- monastic situation. So you were in the Galupka school? Yeah. Right. Is that the same school as the Dalai Lama? It is, yeah. Oh, okay. Dalai Lama is not the head of the Galuk school, but he is yeah, he's tradition. the most famous person within the Galuk school. And I know Stephen, I've heard him talk about it more, but as you were there for the seven years, were you pretty committed or were you confused by some of the ideas? How how bought into the whole framework and the, the whole Buddhist endeavor were you, especially being growing up with philosophical Western ideas? I would imagine there, there must have been some conflict at times with what they were presenting and what you might have thought. Um, I, I don't think there was not much conflict initially. I mean, I kind of bought into the package yeah. initially. And as you probably know, the Galuk school is the most philosophical out of all of these schools. I mean, their chief main, you know, the main way of learning in the monasteries was philosophical debate. Right. You engage in it. Um, and that was sort of six days a week, engaging in some kind of debate. Um, you read texts, you understand them, then you test your understanding on the debate courtyard about it. So all of that was fine for quite a long time. I mean, I would say about three years or so, um, and probably longer. Okay. But then, you know, there's a lot of prejudicial attitudes, as you know, within schools of Buddhism. And it was like, you know, don't don't be interested in Abhidharma. That's the kind of the end of the course. Yeah. Yeah, the end of the course. It's the least interesting bit. And me being sort of bloody minded about the whole thing. I was yeah. just in saying, well, actually, perhaps there is something there. So Yeah, you wanted you know, to do it because they told you not to. Exactly. Yeah. That was exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Or they're so saying so they, had, so they had they had a bit of an agenda as in terms of what you should think about and not think about, it sounds like. As I most mean, schools yeah, probably was, do. All of the schools have a party line. Yeah. No, the party line for um, Giluk Buddhism, Giluk Tibetan Buddhism, was Madhyamaka is it. If you understand Madhyamaka, you've got the highest viewpoint you could possibly have. You don't need to know about all the other stuff. Right. Yeah. Which is a very religious position, of course. Well, it is. When you're involved in it, particularly when you're young, I mean, I was very young um, at that period, 
um you don't tend to think of that so much it right. only strikes you as you go through it and you become aware of the dogmatism and the religiosity behind it mm. that it starts to you know, it kind of starts to irritate a little bit starts yeah. to grate and where did you go after that did you did you didn't you go to sri lanka before you went back to the uk did you, did you yeah i did i mean I, I had a period back in the uk and then i went to sri lanka and and primarily to, to look at abhidhamma uh within now the theravada abhidhamma so we went to sri lanka where you kind of Going more with the Theravadan school, did you? Because that's what Sri Lanka primarily is, right? The bhikkhus of of Sri well, Lanka. Well, it's yeah, it's it's the Theravadan country. I mean, Theravada was exported from Sri Lanka to other aspects of Asia. You know, went to Thailand and Burma, or Burma and Thailand, um, and so it was exported from there. Oh, so so the Theravada, as we sort of know it loosely, originated in Sri Lanka. That's oh yeah, very very much. I mean, Theravada literally means doctrine of the elders, Um, and and actually within Sri Lanka, you refer to the elder monks as Theras. Yeah, Yeah. right. Okay. And how long were you there for? Uh, I was there for a couple of years. um, There on again on and off. Not all. Yeah, I was still. I traveled around the island. I looked a lot of the Buddhist historical stuff that's there because there's a huge quantity of Buddhist material in Sri Lanka. I bet. And I'm, I'm probably going to probably going to butcher their names, but did you run into Nyana Panakatera or I did indeed. Uh, any of those folks? Because I did indeed. I had many interviews with Nyana Panaka. That must have been interesting. Mm. What was he like? <laughs> he was very interesting. I mean, he was he was part of that original wave of germans who yeah. went to sri lanka um and in a way they re-established buddhism in many senses in sri lanka what about um, nayanatana nayanatana loka nayantaloka yeah. yeah yeah i know i didn't come across him nayanaponika was the character he lived up in the forest hermitage up in candy okay and so i used to go up and see him and you know had great conversation he must have had okay english then Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he he'd lived in um, Sri Lanka, you know, a fair proportion of his life. Yeah, and his English his English was excellent. He was also interned as a German because during the war, right. during the Second World War, he was interned in a, in a camp in India. Now, is he the fellow who took his own life at the end? No, no, not so. Who was yeah. that? Nyanavira. Nyanavira. Okay, those are the three that I always get mixed up. Yeah. Well, Nyanavira yeah. was English. Nyanavira oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Whereas uh, Nyantaloka was English, uh, but um, Nyanaponika was actually German, okay. as with many of the original people who went there initially. So when you're in Sri Lanka looking at Pali Abhidharma, you must be learning Pali at this point? Yeah, I started. I started. I wasn't terribly good at that st- stage. I also had a period learning Sanskrit in India as well. Okay. So. And so is it safe to say that your doorway into the Theravada thinking or the Pali canon or this kind of stuff where I want to move into next, would, would that kind of would that kind of introduce those ideas through the Theravada Abhidharma? So you kind of came oh, yeah. came top down a little bit? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was interested in the psychology and philosophy of the Abhidharma. Um, 
And in, I mean, strangely enough, you think, you know, now, particularly given the uh, bias towards Sutta material, Sutta material wasn't the main thing I was looking at. It was mainly Abhidharma material. Yeah. Um, and primarily, it was, again, it was coming out of that, well, you know, this is not important to know that the Tibetans were saying. And I thought, well, if they're yeah. saying that, I'm going to go and have a look at it. That's right. So I would imagine, and I, and I think I've learned this from you, that so you're in Sri Lanka at that time, Abhidharma, they're probably... Is it safe to say, are they more aligned with the commentaries in the Vasudhi Maga than they are the Pali Canon? Or is um, it just a hodgepodge of all? No, no. It's, it, the Vasudhi Maga is Theravada Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I mean, to greater and lesser extent. It's 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 encyclopedic. Buddhaghosa, of course, was part of the Mahavihara. Mahavihara is in Sri Lanka. You know, the ruins of it you still see. And excavation work is still going on in Sri Lanka. So this is where this guy was compiling all this material uh, into what becomes known as the Visuddha Maga. And that's and what, is that a thousand years after the Buddha died? 1500? When, when does the Visuddha Maga it's sort the, of it's arrive? Fifth, it's the fifth century. Fifth century, okay. So it's a, it's a good 900 years after the Buddha's death. If you take the Buddha's death as being around about 400, traditionally it's always taken as being 480. All the recent scholars have been saying it's probably around about 400 BCE. That he yeah. And so the 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 Pali texts as we know them, those are those come out of Sri Lanka, sort of they were found on tea leaves, they were written down on tea leaves. Is that if you actually went back to the original source, is that where you would be going to these tea leaves that were written down um, in Sri Lanka? Well well, they're actually written on palm leaves. Yeah. But that doesn't occur until the end of the first century BCE. Okay. So it's quite late. So it's a good even, I mean. Buddhism arrives in Sri Lanka pretty soon. So it arrives in the 4th century BCE, yeah, yeah. pretty soon after the Buddha's death, um, in, in the reign of Ashoka. It's Ashoka who sends his supposedly... Oh, okay. It's Ashoka who sends his son and daughter to Sri Lanka. So he exports the Dharma to Sri Lanka, basically. He exports the Dharma. I mean, Buddhism was always a missionary religion. Totally. Right from the very start. Right up till current times and me sitting here, right? You know, it's yeah, it yeah. It's still, it's still there. We're still exporting. You know, it's still being exported in different ways, mm. and so it arrives in Sri Lanka at a very, very early period. That's why it's the first. It, it's the first, if you like, country that's uh, converted to Buddhism. Right, right. Yeah. So you're there for a couple of years. So what happens if you go back to the UK after yeah. being in probably a Buddhist countries and doing stuff for probably close to a decade? I would imagine on and off. It was on and off over a long, long period of time, and I arrived back in the West in the eighties. Yeah, was uh, that was that like kind of were you thrown up? That must have been weird, for lack of a better word, to just now you're back in 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 the eighties. It's the eighties. You're back in the UK with all this ancient wisdom floating around in your head. Was that was that a comfortable move? Was that awkward? With, with how was it to reacclimate back to that? What was that like? Um, it, it wasn't as strange as you might think, because I think when I was in Asia, what I was starting to discover very much, and I think it probably falls into the secular Dharma theme in a way, I was just starting to discover my Westernness, having wanted to escape it, which uh -huh. is part of the reason why you're going to India, want to escape the bourgeois lifestyle that, you know, particularly in the late 60s, early 70s that was around in the West. I mean, it'd gone through the hippie thing and everything else. Yeah. And so it was a well, you know, it was a well-worn trail to the East. 
but it was still escaping. It was a sort of escape. Right. To it. Totally. Um, but when I was there, I started to really appreciate aspects of Westernness, you know, huh. literature, philosophy, things that I'd originally started with and were actually started me off on that journey in the first wow, place. Wow, your, your life's starting to turn into a Joseph Campbell thing, isn't it? Like the longest way around is the shortest <laughs> way home, you know? Well, so yeah, you, it is. Yeah, well, that's I mean, good to hear. So the returning back was actually, you weren't so disillusioned. It seemed like you were kind of comfortable coming back with a different thing and reintegrating back into, I guess, secular life as we know it in, in the early I mean, 80s. I, that's right. And, and 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 if you want sort of kind of, it was like trying, what do I do now? was the kind of question I had, obviously. Mm. And it was, well, I've got to really try and find a language if I want to express this, you know. And so I had a friend at that time who had later became a colleague of mine, actually, at Bristol University, who said to me, why don't you come and do a degree? Yeah in religious studies and you can specialize in buddhism uh, in which case, would make a lot of sense after what you've been through right that's like kind of a great that's suggestion what, that's what he thought that's what he thought you know he said you've got languages you can you know you can do this you know a lot easier and that will give you a much more sort of focused way of being um being able to present this material and again me being me i go okay that's a good idea but i think i'll go and study philosophy <laughs> <laughs> thanks but no thanks well it was very much like that and uh, so i went off and studied philosophy instead mm, yeah. um and i thought because what i really want to articulate is probably better found within the language of philosophy than the language of religion well it was probably a smart move at the time yeah uh, and that's exactly what i did and and in a way my academic career then followed from that because and that's um, what 84 two three four five somewhere in there by the sun it was 84 when i started studying and so i graduated 87 something like that then okay. went straight to do a phd yeah now um, when did you and did, did it happen when did you encounter or start to practice or learn about vipassana as we know it <laughs> vipassana had always been there Okay, um, because it's it's translated so differently. I mean, for example, in Tibetan, there was always vipassana. Right, so you so you you caught onto that quickly, or at least that was acknowledged. I and, knew it was there. It was it's certainly there within Sri Lanka. I mean, there were yeah. you know, um, teachers who were teaching vipassana type retreats in Sri Lanka, and I did some of them. I was very interested in that more experiential, non intellectual approach. To Buddhism, yeah, you know, because everything hitherto had been a sort of more intellectual focus. You know, and the one thing I really appreciate in my Tibetan background is is intellectual training. I was really trained uh, in some ways to analyze things and look at things very, very carefully from a philosophical perspective. But what it seemed to lack was this big experiential dimension. And I think if you interviewed Stephen, you'd probably hear him say something very similar. Totally, yeah. And so he went down a different route to me, um, you know, by going off and doing Zen, whereas I stayed within looking at Theravada mm -hmm. and things like that, trying to find an experiential way of practicing. Yeah, that's really the only way to say it. 
Do you remember when you whether you, were you either on retreat or introduced to Vipassana? Did you ever get to a point when you're doing Vipassana where you kind of were having these classic insights? We were almost like a little bit of a wow of like, wow, this is a whole this whole experiential thing is a bit fascinating and interesting. And did you did you ever get that with it with it gradual? Or did you ever have one of those big sort of like, oh boy? No, it was a more gradual thing with me. It was a, it was a gradual movement into that. <clears throat> balanced always by the understanding. I mean, I always feel that, you know, this is a very personal thing, but I always feel there's two aspects to our practice. One, you've got to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Sure. And the other is then doing it, um, having had that focus to start with. Um, and it's no good just doing it without understanding, and it's no good understanding without doing it. You know, it's like kind of how do you put the two together? Right. And so I was very interested in that. And it was, you know, not just interested, passionate about it. And it was a gradual sense of movement into that exploration because it is that's what it is, an exploration. I don't feel I've stopped. Even it's still right. an exploration. I, you know, the more I know, the less in a way I feel I understand. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also curious, having some a lot of Buddhism in your brain at that point, was there a particular kind of philosophical, Western philosophical school or line of thinking that you kind of were drawn to that you focused on that was kind of guided by Buddhist thought? Yeah, it was, um, and still is in many ways. I mean, a lot of my kind of work now is focused on um, existential phenomenological approaches yeah. to Buddhism um, and obviously the western tradition itself i mean as as an undergraduate student i was forced to do anglo-american analytic philosophy as well as that so i had to do all this logic and formalized logic and what i call arguments about particular words and how they're used and how they're understood and i just thought mm, this is the very thing that puts most people off philosophy right yeah, but when you come across people like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, um, many of these, I mean, for me, it was Heidegger, who was a big moment, and Sartre, yeah. understanding what these people were doing, um, there was something of a committed philosophical um, dimension that actually, yeah. particularly in Sartre's case, manifested, whether you like it or not, in his life and the way he lived. Right. I was also the first the first thing that I read that got me involved in all this was Camus. I had a, oh, I had yeah. a, I had a high school English teacher. I didn't care about school until I was in my senior year, which is sort of unfortunate. But mm. I had a high school English teacher who had us read two books. He had us read uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse and The Stranger <laughs> by Albert Camus. Mm. And, and, and for me, those books were so insanely connected to each other that it really kind of it, that was the first time in my life and i you know was doing lots of drugs and stuff anyway but it was, mm. i think it was when i got installed of like oh thinking about life from a philosophical perspective is actually really quite worthwhile yeah i mean camus is very very influential i mean it's a particularly when you're younger i mean it's a great yeah. book for adolescence you know because it's really dealing with fundamental questions like you know does life have meaning or is it completely absurd right uh, and who tries to put forward and and if it is absurd how do you live with that absurdity and not commit suicide you know, right no is... he yeah he's very provoking that way and yeah. and i like his whole quest is all about trying to be it's trying to find a middle way between those two where it's like you know meaningfulness is kind of that's your job like you're gonna have to do that on your own no one's gonna hand that to you yeah i mean i, I still think there's a lot there i mean i think there's a lot there within sartre the dialogue between sartre and Camus. Yeah. Um, as well, because you know, it is about the quest for how do you create meaning in a in a world where meaning isn't given to you right. at all. 
totally. Yeah. So I'm going to fast forward a bit here because uh, I know that you actually, I think the first time I learned about you was through Dharma Seed, which is usually where we learn about everybody, is you <laughs> did a talk on mindfulness for, I think it was for students in the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy world. Now, yeah. I've gotten the sense, I'm just curious how you got pulled into that, and it seems like you were sort of tapped as the mindfulness person, and that was, was that through Oxford? Is, is that how that happened? How did you end up there, and were, were you reluctant, or were you excited, or, because that was sort of, I would imagine you getting pulled into more of a clinical kind of mindfulness, and where probably much different than what you've done before. Yeah, well, it, it just, I won't I won't go into all the details about it, but it is a strange story the way I got sucked into into that whole thing. Um, I was part of a group that was trying to found a centre for Buddhist studies in Oxford with Richard Gombrich. Who you okay, know. yeah, sure, Richard, yeah, who was the um, professor of Sanskrit at the time in Oxford, but his real passion was Pali and trying to establish a centre for Buddhist studies, and so I got involved with that. There was this thing going on down the road at a hospital, um, a psychiatric hospital. You know, it's actually the centre for, the, the, it's the Department of Psychiatry for Oxford University. And somebody there was working there developing the mindfulness programmes, the secular mindfulness programmes called um, Mark Williams. And Mark came along and met us because he said, you know, perhaps as a charity, it might be good for us all to get together because we're, you know, I'm using Buddhist material, although I'm not a Buddhist, I'm actually a Christian. And you're trying to do this. So just from a pragmatic point of view, might it be useful if we kind of formed a charity together? So that's what went on. And Mark said, I know of your work because I've listened to some of your talks a bit like you were saying. About yeah, right. Thing. And he said, would you be interested in joining me? At that time, I was still teaching Buddhist studies in, in Bristol University at that point. You know, so I'd gone from teaching philosophy to Buddhist studies. And then um, basically, um, Mark invited me to be part of the program that they were setting up and developing the program of a, a master's degree in, um, in um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Wow. And so I said to him, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, I'd like you to teach some basic Buddhist psychology. I thought, fine, yeah, great, I can do that. Um, and I said, how long do you want me to do? He said, oh, I want it to be a third of the course. <laughs> That's wild. You're thinking like a Saturday morning like lecture, and he's like, no, no, I want this to be integral, which is actually, yeah. I would give him great credit for recognizing the value in that. Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, it was incredible uh, to think that, A, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Buddhist at all, but he saw the value of what, you know, Buddhist psychology had to offer. So in um, many ways, a true secular Dharma program. It's a true secular Dharma program. Um, but the amusing thing was, in many ways, because I had psychiatrists and counsellors and, you know, clinicians and that coming in. <laughs> all being subjected to a third of the whole course on Buddhist psychology. Um, it was probably easier to have them get that background than a Buddhist background because they didn't, they probably weren't that contentious with what you were offering or were they? Well, they were contentious in different ways, but you know, it, the interesting thing was when I did have Buddhists, you know, coming from sometimes from a Tibetan background or whatever, but mainly from Tibetan backgrounds, interestingly enough, they were so dogmatic in comparison with the clinicians who would argue about aspects of psychology 
but they wouldn't argue about the basic overall what I call secularized approach because obviously I wasn't doing it as a you know a Dharma teacher. I was doing it as an academic, right. teaching aspects of why this would be important for what you're doing. And I used to call it the sort of DNA of what they were doing in a secular context. Right. <laughs> See, to me, that's so fascinating. We can go on and on about that. Maybe we will. But just that, that just that moved it. Now talk about. Um, you know, the exportation of Dharma. So this is like really something that's getting exported uh, yeah. and, you know, from you really, but like looking, having the Western training, being able to say, here's how you can make sense of this in a way with a clinical mind that might be helpful. And I would imagine many people probably found that to be quite helpful and even fascinating. Well, they did. I mean, that was, that was in a way, that was very heartening uh, to actually be involved in that. I mean, you asked me how I felt about teaching it in that context. I always remember the first lecture I gave to a group, as I said, clinicians and people with you know, that clinical background and saying to them, you know, ever since I got involved with Buddhism, this is like a sort of dream come true to sit in front of people, a bunch of non-Buddhists to talk about the ideas, but not have you want to be Buddhists? And also, you don't have to. I don't. I don't know. I find this happens to me in my teaching when I'm in a group of Buddhists. I almost have to qualify where I'm coming from, which kind of can take like 15 minutes. We're like, yeah. when you get in a group of clinicians, you, you actually don't even want to do that. You're like, let's just get down. Let's just get on with it. And I don't mm. have to like justify where I'm coming from and why I'm coming from there. I, I mean, that's exactly. And, and what I what I was what I tried to say to them, and I still feel, I mean, I still feel this extremely passionately, is what we're talking about, if it has any degree of validity whatsoever, is we're not talking about a tradition called Buddhism. It just happens to be the conduit for these ways of thinking. Yeah. You know, when we start talking about, for example, sati, mindfulness, we're talking about something that is a quality that humans possess. It's Nothing not Buddhist about Buddhism. it, really, actually. No, that's right. It's a quality you either possess or you don't. Yeah. You know, and that's an empirical thing. Right. You that's what I tell people that. too. Like mindfulness just comes on the hard drive. Whether you develop or not, it's up to you. But it's like it's already here hanging around anyway. Yeah. And in some aspects you'll just you'll demonstrate it. And some sometimes you won't. Yeah. Uh, but the point is what we're developing is human qualities. We're not developing something which are Buddhist human qualities. We're developing right. something which is human qualities. Yeah. It just happens to be that that tradition for its two and a half thousand years has focused on those aspects of mind. Right. And so it's like a proto-psychology. I mean, I wouldn't say it's even a full-blown psychology in a Western sense. No, it's, it's like proto-psychology that's directed at freedom right. <laughs> or something. Yeah, because that's one of the shift that I've been trying to make to people, and I, I explain this quickly, and I think people get it. Is it seems like we're moving from a kind of Buddhism is about understanding the ultimate nature of reality, moving away from that and moving towards actually this is going to help you live your life. Yeah, exactly. That's the question you want to do. I mean, I'm teaching later on in the year for Bodhi College. I'm teaching a course on ethics, which is called, you know, how to live, what to do. Right. There you those go. are the, those yeah. are the two basic questions. Yeah. Now we're back to pragmatism. Yeah, you're you're back to the basic questions. Yeah. How is it going to affect the ways that you live? Because otherwise, if it doesn't affect the ways you live, you know, theoretically it can be absolutely fascinating, but it doesn't really mean that much. It doesn't have any teeth, really. No, it doesn't. It doesn't actually get to grips with the basic existential problems that we all have in some way or another. I mean, most of these can be summed up in some ways as questions of meaning. Right. Well, let me ask you this question. I think this is really 
ties in here. This kind of escape in the 60s to Eastern, do you think in many ways that was kind of um, trying to avoid all how we live our life, a kind of an escape of like, the world is just terrible and wrong, I'm gonna go do this other thing. It seems like it was almost like a an unintentional spiritual bypass where we're, there was a departure to understand the ultimate nature of reality so we don't have to suffer anymore. We don't have to deal with the monotony and the bullshit and the dribble and the dukkha of life to going, actually, you know what, this is this is a whole system to actually help you do that, not get away from it. I think there's two elements involved in it. One was escapers of a West, which, you know, the turmoils and the stuff that's still happening even these days. You know, yeah, it's just, totally. It's just different. That's all. You know, there was the Vietnam conflict that was going on at those periods. There was... I don't know, political upheavals. Yeah, no, none of this sounds different, does it, from what we're going? It's just you change the names, that's all. Totally, just another version yeah. of the same story. So there, was a, there was a sense of escaping all that, and, and, and there was a kind of ideation about an idealization of what was going on in India, as if, as if India was a spiritual country. Mm-hmm. It's absolute nonsense. You know, The reality of it is it's as materialistic as ever any other country in the world. It just happens to have traditions that teach something. Right. I think what people were looking for within that escape, they either did it through drugs or they did it through looking for some spiritual realisation to get that sort of sense of unification that was going on. No matter which way you look at it, it's an escape. An escape of fleeing from the West to something that's romantic, something that's ultimately very different, ultimately very different. You know, if you start, start talking about Tibetans, I mean, these in those days, I mean, they'd only been out of Tibet for, you know, 11 years by the yeah. time I encountered them. Yeah. You know, they're romantic figures coming from this mythical land. Right. You know, so there's a lot about what I call the romanticism of the Western, of the Western imagination involved in that. Which was about an escape to something different than and better, and seemingly better. Seemingly yeah. better, yeah, right. <laughs> Let's qualify that word correctly. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So when you um, approach this MBCT, so I mean, it seems like there's really not much argument to be made about like mindfulness as we know it, secular mindfulness, mindfulness in modern culture mm-hmm. seems that most of its theory application is really drawn from the Satipatthana Sutta. Yeah, yeah, most of it is. Yeah, and so, and if you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, it seems to appear quite different and unique compared to other Pali suttas because it seems to be highly organized. Uh, and the thing that I want to get to a little bit, I don't know how far we'll get down, the road, is it has this definition, uh, but it also has this refrain. Uh, it mm. almost reads like it was a highly crafted sutta, a lot more so than some of the other suttas I've read. Does it sort of stick out in a sore thumb that way, or am I a bit off about that? It's a it's a peculiar sutta. Let's put it that way. It's a very peculiar sutta. A, I don't know if you've ever noticed the suppose, supposedly place where it's taught is nowhere near where the Buddha was actually living or teaching. Oh, I, didn't, I never got where was it taught. Uh, well, it was supposedly taught up in north west India. So it was one of those things the sutta starts off, the Buddha was so-and-so, he addressed these people in this sort of place, and like a lot of them do. So so it takes place in a very odd venue. It takes place in a very, very odd venue, far removed from the places where, you know, generally referred to in the early suttas. From a scholarly point of view, it also looks like it's what I call, this is very appropriate because the word sutra means to stitch. Right. (laughs) 
you know, it's a stitched together text. In other words, it was probably four separate discourses. And you think but, there were four separate foundations, the four separate being the four different foundations? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so it's been put together at some point historically, and possibly that odd place where it's supposedly taught is the place where it was put together rather huh. than than actually where it was taught. Interesting. Yeah. So you've got this odd, you've got this odd sutta. Yeah. Um, it's been worked over tremendously. You know, there are different recensions of this. Um, I mean, there's a recension, for example, in the Chinese, um, which bears close comparison with the um, Pali Sutta, but has differences as well. You know, yeah. There's a difference between the, you know, the Sri Lankan version and, for yeah. example, the Burmese. Not huge differences, but minor Some differences. Some differences. And also, too, from the Theravada school, even though they are more of the Vasudhimaga, it also gets the sense that it is sort of their revered text, right? It's the one that they, if they had to hold up one of their texts, it seems like that would be the one they would go to, or is that not correct? Uh, that I, you know, Theravada Buddhism is based on a reading of the sutta material within the Pali Canon. Okay. It's a selective reading. What I would say is is that the Satipatthana Sutta is part of that selective okay. reading. Yeah, it, yeah. Where it draws, if you like, its most practical elements from. Um, so it's from, real privilege in modern culture. It's like, so what we would call insight meditation or Vipassana. They're the folks who have sort of said, this is the thing. Yeah. And they're sort of the Bible people. nowadays, I feel like. Yeah. But bear in mind, of course, that the notion of insight meditation is a relatively newcomer. Right. You know, this is not spoken about in ancient texts at all. Right. It's a it's an invention of the Burmese tradition in the 19th century. Right. To talk about vipassana. So to and, say vipassana and satipatthana are synonyms is really not true at all. No, not at all. Not at all. No, no, no. And that's it's how it gets true. kind of you know. It's like I always say, people. Funnily enough, because I've been doing this for a while, I would sit vipassana retreats at IMS in the early 90s. Yeah. And you could sit a 10 day vipassana retreat in the early 90s and maybe not even hear the word mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think it was yeah. John Kabat-Zinn who really, and I'm, and I'm glad he did that, but it seems like to be that, and then now they've kind of gotten conflated to, to more or less mean the same thing, and it just seems like they just really don't more or less mean the same thing at all. No, I mean, Vipassana is used throughout the text, Yeah, uh, the word Vipassana, but Vipassana just refers to insight. Insight. That's all. Yeah, it's this strange thing. I mean, if you wanted to you know, cobble a couple of Pali words together, it would be vipassana bhavana, you know, cultivation, cultivation of, of insight. Right. Be, right. You know, what we would call insight meditation. Yeah. Now, the word, now I know you and I have had this conversation before. I know the Metta Sutta, which is part of the Sutta Nipata, is very, very old. Do we see the word sati or shmerti? Or is that is that something that you see in early, early Pali texts? So that word was floating around, mm -hmm. even though the discourse on the foundation of the mindfulness might not have been developed? You, well, I mean, obviously the Metta Sutta occurs in a fairly early text. The Sutta Nipata, as I think you referred it to. Um, and the word sati does occur because it refers to metta as a satin, yeah. um, which means there is no greater way of developing mindfulness here than through this practice of metta. Yeah. There is some scholarly argument about whether it's referring to actually metta being a sati or a, just another oblique reference in right. some ways. But it's certainly clearly there. And I, I personally take it as to say that, that metta is a way of developing what we call mindfulness. Yeah. Right. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I, I think I think the earlier back you go, meta and mindfulness are more and more married. The further back you dig, and they've been parsed out slowly over time. I, I think I think just from a practical just from a practical point of view, you can see how you know one of the basic preconditions for engaging in this thing that we call mindfulness practice is that there's degrees of kindness involved. Right. Uh, I personally am very critical. I mean, you've heard me say this before, but I'm very personally critical of meditation techniques with the emphasis on techniques, which don't actually have as as a fundamental attitudinal change that development of kindness and friendliness within the practice. Yeah. It becomes a bit like a sort of Buddhist boot camp. Well, I agree. Yeah. That that's probably one of the reasons why I stumbled into you and I've been pestering you all these years. Is, <laughs> and I told I found that to be the case too. Is and also working with I taught in prisons and youth detention. I I've I my meditation teaching career started in rooms where the suffering was overwhelming. Yeah. And so if there was and I noticed early on, like if we don't get a little bit of meta going on here, this whole project is going to go sideways. And I've seen it go sideways many times. So I used to start almost always with which I used to just use the word basic goodness. I was like, let's just see if we can get in touch with the fact that whatever we've done, whatever we've been through, underneath all the garbage, there is a, a an inclination or a felt sense of either wanting to be good or coming from a goodness. And it was just kind of the way that I used the word metta in the deep south. But And I found mm-hmm. that when people could get a bit of that, everything else became a lot easier. I mean, metta is a notoriously difficult word to translate, and, and you probably know the, the the translation I don't like is loving kindness right. because it's not loving. It has nothing to do with love at all in that way. It certainly has something to do with kindness. I mean, one translation, and I think partly I'm responding to what you've just said, is actually what you're developing is a sense of goodwill. Goodwill. That's right. That would be, it's a bit flaccid, but it's, you know, it's getting there. It's getting towards it. I mean, the actual word meta is is cognate with the word mitra. Which means friend. Which means friend. So what you're doing is becoming a good friend to yourself Mm. and to your mental states and to your physical states and whatever is arising for you. And actually, I think this is, let's just talk about because we're talking in a western context here we're talking about in a a western context then this is a huge problem for an awful lot of western people big time they don't actually like themselves very much right and they think if they master some meditation technique that will magically vanish exactly yeah yeah um i mean i've seen over the years over you know fairly long teaching career and, and perhaps some other teachers would possibly say this as well but i've seen more changes occur just by that fundamental attitudinal shift of starting to become more accepting towards the way that you are not to say i'm going to remain here always but accepting the way you are in order to have a platform for change right movement forward so there has to be a fundamental acceptance of who and what you are with all its warts and all yeah, at this moment. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you so much. I mean, I say this to people, my students, when I work in my mentoring program, the first thing I say to them almost always is, if you're getting involved in this project, this Dharma project, whatever you want to call it, to solve the problem of you, I say mm-hmm. we need to start there because now we're operating under the assumption that you are, in fact, somehow a problem which is yeah. a very unkind attitude towards oneself. So so if that's where we're starting, let's just like get at that right now because that's not going to help. Yeah. And and we need and we need to fundamentally change some of the language that we use around this as well. You know, because I was saying to a group actually I was teaching on Saturday, 
uh, saying to a group, let's let's not call where your mind goes when you're not with the breath a distraction. It's not totally. a distraction. Yeah. To, to call it a distraction is automatically to demonize yeah. your thought processes, your, you know, your hearing, your sight, or whatever it may be that's taken you away. This is just the natural movement of the mind being called to something it finds more interesting that's or more right. concerning at this yeah. moment. Of time. Yeah. yeah. The kind thing is to acknowledge that. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, ironically, I would say this too. It's like, what, so let's just call it that the mind gets distracted, lost in thought. The, the thing that's telling you that that happened is actually mindfulness. So if you yeah. associate that with being a bad or wrong or negative moment, you're actually kind of creating an anti-mindfulness feedback loop because the mind doesn't want to feel bad. Yeah, well, you're you're also you're creating an almost internal civil war. Right, that's right. Yeah, which is which is not what we're trying to do. We're, I mean, the, the breath itself is merely an anchor. Right. It's it's nothing else. You know, all the in the in the insight, the vipassana, if you like, is occurring when you start to see the repetitions of patterns. You start to see things that can be cultivated. You can start to recognize things that you might want to drop. Right. Experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. And one thing that I learned from my teacher, Stephen Smith, that I, that I liked here when you used the breath as an anchor was I learned early on that I could use meta as an anchor. Yeah. Uh, which really cooled everything down for me. I was like, oh, because it's not really like it's a weird anchor, right? Because it's the breath is obvious, but like I, I've I actually been doing it for so long now, I don't even know how to do it. But I, when I come back or whatever, that's my primary ground is the ground of friendliness, which yeah. actually makes the whole project much more enjoyable. Because then I come back and say, it's okay that that happened. Let's let's just start over. Let's just you know. So it's, it's again, it's almost like my my mind is a friend rather than the enemy. Well, that's right. I mean, that's exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to befriend what is there, even if it's something you don't like. You know, right. it's not saying you have to love it, you know, and I want it to remain around for a long time. What you're saying is I can at least accept you and acknowledge you, whatever this might be. Um, yeah. And now let's move on. Well, it's great. That's why I like the word friend, because I don't always like my friends. I don't always agree with, I, I have really good friends that I love and appreciate known for years and we don't see eye to eye about everything and we argue about things. It's not all kosher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but, the, yeah. but the friendliness, the kindness is, is, is such an important value that we're willing to put aside those differences in views and opinions to say, well, like, actually I value our friendship, John, so much that the fact that we don't agree eye to eye on all these other things is a bit irrelevant. Yeah, and also part of being a friend is also to not want to control. Right. To let it to let go. I mean, using your analogy, you know, your your metaphor here, you know, you might have a really, really good friend, but you wouldn't want them to move into your house forever. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the problem, of course, is your mind's never gonna move out. So it really it really gives you it really ups the stakes of like let's let's get this let's get this thing working together so that way we can we can practice in a way that's not about and i think it, it's it, this is the, the real challenge i think for us in in a western context and i don't want to overemphasize that but i think it's a real challenge for us is to develop that fundamental sense of goodwill towards ourselves and others yeah. you know, that's that's where the real work is if you want to call it that <laughs> and boy does the world need that right now I, it needs it hugely. It needs it hugely. And it's an ethical component. Yeah. It's a component of the ethics that we're developing, which is an ethics of friendliness. Yeah. 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 Awesome. 
We're going to have to do a couple of these interviews, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you this, though, because without getting because I don't have time to get into the stuff I want to get to, but this is good, is when you look at this, this, this is one of the critiques I get, one of the questions I get that I clumsily answer, and that question is people talk about the Satipatthana, and they say, well, where in the Satipatthana is the word ethics? And more specifically, where are the Brahma Viharas in the Satipatthana? Um, is there in the, in the definition? You know, you have you have uh, anupasati, atapi, sampajano. You have this desire and discontent. In that, de is there anything in there that we could discern without trying to overimpose? Like, where would the sila or the ethics or the metta? Where does that sit in the satipatthana? Or maybe it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it's taken and, as a ground. It's taken as a ground that you. So that's walk. a bit of a problem, right? I don't think it is a problem because okay. actually it's saying don't read the Satipatthana Sutta in isolation from other suttas. Well, that's the problem with everybody does that to some degree. Yeah, and yeah. that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this is I I feel that, that's a, that we need to address that. And I think, you know, in a secularized context, there's that tendency to want to go to this principal text because it is, if you like, the most practical text. I mean, Buddhism in the, all of its suttas, in those thousands and thousands of suttas, doesn't have many practical texts. And the Satipatthana Sutra is about as practical as it gets. Yet it takes for granted that you've already founded yourself in some degree of sila. Now, and the word sila again is difficult because it sort of moves between ethics and morality. How know? does the word virtue fit in there? Or is that okay? Is that an okay word? Or do you have an issue with that one? I don't have an issue with that because I think it's a very important word. It's not a very, you know, it's not a word that's used a lot these it's days. It's not a very colloquial term. No, not these days. Um, but I think that's what we're developing. What we're developing is um, the virtues of character. Mm -hmm. and, and and if you want to look at Buddhism from a Western perspective, it comes close to virtue ethics and you know, in the Aristotelian sense, which is actually we develop our character by goodness and justice and truth and things like this in activity and 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 that is a way of moving towards some degree of freedom um yeah i mean this is a big topic but if i was putting it very simply i think virtue is a good word yeah yeah yeah, yeah i think so too uh, you got the word sila integrity virtue there's, there, there's, a, there's a couple words i think morality is the one that's the most troublesome and i try to say let's just see if we can put that one a little bit of a side because i think it comes with a whole lot of just unfortunate baggage that can take a while to untangle yeah morality is not a bad term it's just it's really you've got to see it as not absolute yeah. it's just the it's the basically it's the agreement within a society to operate in a certain way yeah yeah and not all the rules of morality are good rules that's you know? right uh, they're historical they're socially conditioned you know etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> yeah I guess the one word I would drill down on with our little bit of time here that we can probably address this in a later interview is it, I think it's a very fascinating word that shows up in the Satipatthana that the secular mindfulness world hasn't noticed is this word Sati Sampajana, mm -hmm. which it seems to be like usually it's translated as mindfulness and daily activities, which is ironic because mostly what we're doing is dealing in um, daily activities. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we never had this conversation. What do you what, what do you say about that this word? What is this word Sati Sampajana? Satisampajana, mindful and clearly knowing. Yeah. What is clearly knowing? Because that's you. That's a. That's a. What does that actually mean? Well, it it means being able to see clearly into the situation that you're in. 
Okay. Yeah. So it's a situational thing. I, I mean, the thing. I mean, again, just picking up on the Pali and Jnana, which of course is this is a, a, a form of that's in Sampajana or Sampajanya here. The Nya part, if you hear that, is that N N A again? Yeah, is that N N A with those tildes over the top of it, and it means to know something. Um, so to know it clearly in this instance you know so it's not just a question of developing mindfulness it's also to know the situation you're in. i got you yeah. see to me that's becomes... very important and it seems to be you don't hear like if, once in a while i'll do this little party game where i'll go to Dar- dharma seed and i'll plug something in just to see if anybody's talked about it and it's yeah. ironic sometimes how you'll find these words i'm like oh there's three talks on this like nobody seems to have sniffed this one out yeah i mean it's a very it's it's a really important term and you have to see that, you know, mindfulness isn't, it's, it's an important topic. It's the most used technical term in the whole of the Pali Canon. Yeah. Yet it never operates on its own. It never operates on its own, right. Yeah. It has to have these other supports for it. You know, yeah. So one formulation of this is to have it within the form, formula satisampajanya. You know, okay. So there's a form of knowing that goes with sati. So this is an important concept because I noticed in the Seifu Kwan, he talks about mindfulness has different functions on different occasions for different purposes, yeah. which which makes it very, very dynamic and also very situational. And so it yeah. seems like Sati Sampajano plays in pretty heavily here. And this is really important, again, coming back to your ethical question, because if, if you think of Buddhism as well as not being just a virtue ethics, but a situational ethics. Right. What's that ethics demanding here? So you've got to see much more clearly into your situation. Yeah. You know, what's what's required at this moment, yeah. not as a generalized rule that I apply, but what is actually required. You know, I've got somebody in front of me crying. What do I do at this moment? Right. Do I put my arm around? Oh, no, perhaps not, because this is a female and it might be considered to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, an advance or whatever. You know, so you've got to see really, really clearly. So it's it's skillful. It's how do you develop the most skillful way mm-hmm. of dealing with that situation? Yeah. Which makes the life, which makes the practice really come to life because I mean, in any given day, I always tell people now too, it's like, I mean, like basically life is really kind of one ethical dilemma after another. You know, do I do I let my screaming child eat the popsicle at 7 a.m. or do I not? It's just like, I mean, there's just on my whole day just seems to be like, well, should I or shouldn't I? And I'm always confronted with what would be the right thing. So it seems to be in my mind all the time anyway. And I think it's in a lot of our, to- our minds at time anyway and not falling into like, what's the right proper? Like, where's the list of teachings on whether or not children should eat popsicles in the morning rather than trying to to be really well, living your life one moment to really be engaged with what's happening, to not be caught up in what I needed to do be later. So I think yeah. it's really it seems to be such a central thing that we could probably be talking a, about more, a, reflecting on more. It's a centralized thing, and it's yeah. I mean, this is this is what the practice is really opening because if you think about what we're doing, is we're opening awareness, we're sensitizing awareness through the practice of mindfulness and other practices as well, but mindfulness as well. We're opening the mind and sensitizing the mind, not just for the sake of it, but so we can be engaged in the situations where we really are, you know, where we feel not where we can act and respond rather than react compulsively in situations, you know. 
you know, just with a simple example like that with your child with, you know, the, the popsicle, it's do I or don't I at this moment? Right. Not right. do I have a generalized rule she should never or he never eat. I know. And that's hard to break. It's hard for people to break free from that. Yeah, it is, because we come from Christian Judaic cultures, which right. have as a background the idea of, of ethical prescriptions. Yeah. Yeah. In Buddhism, as we know, we certainly have lists, um, but they are <sighs> more rules of training. Yeah. Be they from the five precepts to the eight precepts to the 10 precepts to the 227 rules of the, mm-hmm. the Theravada um, Vinaya. These are rules of training. They're right. meant to sensitize you and make you aware of the ethical issues. Around That's one you. thing I like. I actually heard. I think I stole it from him. Gethin, you know Rupert Gethin, I'm sure. He talks I about these more. Than, Rupert, so I know him very well. <laughs> you know, he uses the word maps a lot with these ideas, which I think is really good. Like a, a map is, yeah. is a useful device to help you find your way around. You know, exactly. and so, you know, I don't believe in the map. I don't worship the map. The thing is, it might help me. Uh, in this particular context of this situation, navigate the experience more skillfully. And, and it's an actually, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a metaphor I often use in a teaching context as well, because you know what Buddhism does with all its lists is it gives you, it gives you a map of the topography. That's right. You know, it gives you a map of the topography. You know, the different maps will show different aspects of the topography, but. It's no good just looking at the map. That's right. You've got to walk the terrain. That's right, yeah. It's, it's a, a bit like, you know, if you want to go on holiday, you can just buy the holiday brochure and just keep flipping through the holiday brochure instead of so, buying just sit in the airport the whole time. Exactly. Look yeah. at all the places you could have gone to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and so, you know, you've got to walk that terrain and, and the practices are actually the walking of the terrain. So you begin to understand, you know, mm-hmm. for example, if you look at an Abhidharma map, a big map, there, you begin to understand the Akusila factors. You begin to under- recognize some of the Sobana, the Kusila factors yeah. in your experience. Yeah. And so just one last thing, because I think this plays into this as well. And, you know, this Stephen's been on this for a long time and seeing these as tasks. Yeah. So uh, to me, a lot of times I think that uh, we talk about tanha and clinging and craving and all this second noble truth territory. To me, a lot of that is uh, is more of an ethical, like I want to be harmless, I want to be skillful, and I don't want to react from a place of old behaviors that is going to be harm. So to me, there's a lot of implications around overcoming this reactivity is, uh, is really a lot of it has to do with ethics more so than just... Uh, being proper or ending suffering or all these distractions. And the reason I say that, which is interesting, I have a podcast with, and I just realized my podcast has analytics so I can look at all the episodes. And the number one downloaded episode I have is the second noble truth as harmlessness, which I thought was a talk I gave. It's not even really a great talk, but it was interesting to me that people have gravitated towards seeing that a lot of this is not about ending suffering, but it's about not causing harm perhaps. I think that's true. I think it really is about that. I mean, this is the primarily this is the primary ethical principle: is not to do harm, to create less distress for yourself and others. That really is what you call the end of dukkha: is not creating distress for yourself and others as you move through this world. And all too often, the ethical part of it is taken secondarily rather than as a primary dimension. 
you know and what 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 i would really like to swing around is eth- you know, is the meditations as the tool and ethics as the goal and it's not as if we ever reach that goal. We're always striving towards ethics because there's always ways, usually unexamined ways, that we're often doing harm. We live in the contemporary world within structures about which we have relatively little control, which generate harm, which we are often projected into. You know, it's examining all of these things. So we take the goal of awareness, which we, you know, we basically. Um, create within our practices our meditation practices and take them into these realms of life with ethical questions about how we live yeah yeah and i think that that's a nice flip because i i i noticed that for me like when i react and i regret how i reacted my primary mm-hmm. regret is that i cause harm to somebody or i you know and that that's really what hurts the most is is it's yeah. and it's not this whole like this private thing i'm going to close my eyes and i'm going to put an end to this reactivity thing so i don't suffer anymore mm. you know i know it's over the years that when i when i'm when i'm suffering or feeling bad or regretful it's usually because i did something i really wish i hadn't done yeah. and yeah. if you know and if i had been a little bit more aware and a little bit more tuned in when i had done that i would have more likely been able to respond differently which really puts of course the awareness and the mindfulness is the tool so mm-hmm. that and, and so i think that that is a very uh, nice shift yeah i mean it, it's really moving beyond remorse mm-hmm. you know, remorse is a useful reminder i think why buddhism has a sort of downer on remorse is just to be wallowing in remorse is no good we don't do anything we've got to learn from it you know say all of those things i should have done and shouldn't have done and should have said and shouldn't have said you know etc etc and you could go on about those well are you learning anything from that so when i'm in the next situation can i be different can i respond rather than react from you operate from that place of reactivity which i'm normally stuck in right Yeah. And also, and I will end with this because we're coming on time here. That's what I always say it wrong, but isn't there a word in the in the mindfulness teachings that means to learn? Is it apalap? Is there some funny word that you like to use? No, the word the word is sika. Sika. Is, you know, it's there in the precepts, for example, sikapadam, a rule of training. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is you become a learner. You know, you're learning something. I mean, the other word is is apalapana, which is actually again is a, is about remaining vigilantly aware to be able to learn something. It means literally not to float away. <laughs> huh, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so there's a learning there's a learning mechanism to mindfulness. I think that people. Yeah, I mean, the only way you're going to learn is by staying with the situation, yeah. not by floating away. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, thank you, John. It's always good to see you. I'm sure I'm going to I have to try to get you back here again. I'm sure we can go on and on, but we'll call it here today. Thanks for being with me. And thank you for inviting me. <laughs>